After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel, son of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do ye have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they, they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to them, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you, carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after, th and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that his disciples was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who is bearing, wit- who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are so many other things that Jesus did. Uh, were every one of them to be written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all, all the books that would be written. Amen. I will now sing when I survey. I think it'll be fine. Great. If you can keep that passage there open before you, you will um, find that helpful. I'm hoping this isn't going to all fall apart. Excellent. We were thinking just a couple of evenings ago on Good Friday about the way in which through Jesus' death we're welcomed into eternal life through faith. And Jesus is not speaking metaphorically there. He's speaking literally of a physical, eternal life with him. But there's a sense in which that eternal life can begin now, that you can enter into something of eternity through faith in Christ now. And so the thing I want to share with you this morning is, and usually for Easter it's very common, isn't it, for us to perhaps look at the hours just after Jesus' resurrection and to think about proving the legitimacy of that story. And that's right and that's good and we've heard of those verses. But I want to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about the difference that the resurrection makes for us as Christ's followers. And so really I have one simple point that I hope you'll sort of take away, if nothing else, and that is that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Look there at those first eight verses with me, would you? And what I want to show you here is what you do when you want to give up. I wonder whether you'll have uh, perhaps remember the story of Eric Musambani affectionately known as Eric the Eel. He's a swimmer from Equatorial uh, Guinea. He's famous as having recorded the slowest 100-meter freestyle time in Olympic history. He swam 100 meters in 1 minute 52. The winner of those heats did it in 48 seconds. In fact, Eric actually literally had trouble finishing the race. But he won his heat after both other competitors were disqualified due to false starts. Although he was too slow to advance to the next round, he had actually set a personal best and a new national record. But this only tells you part of the story, because before the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, Eric had never actually seen, let alone been in, a 50-metre-long Olympic pool. In fact, he had only started swimming eight months earlier, practising first in a lake and then in a 12-metre pool of a hotel between the hours of 5 and 6 a.m., On getting selected for Equatorial Guinea, he says that he'd heard on the radio that the new National Swimming Federation were recruiting and turned up to a trial at which he was the only person to show up. He said, I went in the pool, started moving my legs, my arms, and they said, okay, that's enough, get out. He recalls, they told me, start swimming because you'll be going to the Olympics in three months. I didn't know what the Olympics was. I went to the National Library and started looking up Olympic Games. (laughs) Upon getting to the games, he says, I was very scared. I said to myself, I couldn't do this. I couldn't swim in this pool because it was very huge for me. At my training sessions at the Olympics, I couldn't even complete 50 metres. I would do half a length and then stop. I didn't know how to breathe properly in the pool. 
in the years after, actually, with better facilities and better opportunities. Actually, Eric reduced his personal best by over a minute uh, to 52 seconds. Very respectable indeed. But Eric said that what had kept him going in that race, where he literally nearly drowned, was that he had not come all that way to represent his nation, to not make it to the finish line. And, you know, I wonder if you can cast your mind to a time where you have felt for all the world that it would be easier to give up. To give up on that dream, on that job, on that person, on that ministry, on that project, or perhaps on Jesus himself. Well, we see the disciples after the arrest of Jesus having all fled, Matthew 26 tells us, all the disciples fled. We see one of those disciples even running away naked. Mark 14 recalls a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We see them locked in the upper room in fear in John chapter 20, that Jesus walks in and needs to say, peace be with you. And we see that even when Jesus has appeared, they don't believe those words. Luke 24 verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. They seem to want to give up. After this, verse 1 tells us, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And there's a significant detail there in that location of Tiberias. Hopefully, ah, oh, there we are, there's a map. Tiberias was a city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It was a city built upon ground in which there was a graveyard, and so it was seen as unclean by Jewish people. It was therefore predominantly inhabited by Gentiles. The, Gentile, uh, the disciples sorry, here have not just left Jerusalem, where all these events had happened. They've gone home. But more than that, They've not just returned to the home where they had lived. They are living under a sort of witness protection. Here they are in a place where they don't think that they'll be recognized because it's an almost entirely Gentile population. They're hoping to keep a very low profile. They've gone back home to Galilee. Contradiction to Jesus' command in Luke 24 to stay in the city until they're filled with the Spirit. And so then Simon Peter has the idea of going fishing. And yet seven of the 11 remaining disciples are also there and make the similar decision to give up and to go home again. And so what does Jesus do? As his disciples are ready to give up, what does he do? He goes after them. You see, even when you try to walk out on Jesus, he comes walking after you. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And as so often, Peter says what everybody else really is thinking, but not quite brave or stupid enough to say out loud, I'm going fishing. And they say, we'll, we'll go with you. This is more than just a mundane recording of their itinerary. This is them abandoning their call that Jesus has given them to be his apostles, to wait in the city, to be empowered by the Spirit that they might go out and they might share the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. 
This is them going back to what they knew. This is them going back to where they were before they'd met Jesus. And how does that go? Look at verse 4. They went out and got out into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. It turns out that the men who later, it's recorded by Luke in, in Acts 17, had turned the world upside down. And that's a commentary of the society at the time. It turns out they weren't actually any good at their day job. Here they are, they've fished all night and they've caught nothing. Perhaps that's harsh. But actually the only other time that we hear of these disciples fishing, they weren't doing well then either. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. When he'd finished speaking, that's Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. From this I pick up two simple points. They weren't great apostles yet, but then they weren't great fishermen either. These were unspectacular, ordinary people, just like you and me. And so everything that will happen through them could happen through you and points to Jesus' resurrection power coming to bear on the lives of ordinary people, not extraordinary people at all. But it also tells us that Jesus does this here with this miraculous catch again to remind them who he is. Because when they caught this great catch, I think they will have gone back to this memory in their minds and perhaps remembered who he was. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus, we're told. And so he asks the question he surely knows the answer to. Children, do you have any fish? No. Why don't they recognize him? It's a question, isn't it? Why is it that this man that they've spent so much time with, so closely, so intimately, why is it they don't recognize him? And in fairness, Mary Magdalene has also mistook him too. In the garden, she supposed him to be the gardener. You see, it's not that they don't know what he looks like. It's not that his appearance has changed that much, I don't think. I think that they don't know who it is because of who they assume it cannot be. Mark records for us, chapter 16, that they would not believe it. Why is any of that important, you may ask? Well, these are the kind of details that you leave out if you're making it up, aren't they? Because they're showing the actual natural skepticism of the disciples, that they did not believe, that they were not expecting Jesus to come back. But by including them, it gives us that confidence that this is a true account. This is how it actually happened. These are people who did not want to believe, who were not ready to believe. They're believing because they found there simply was no alternative. Because it really happened and they were really there. That's my story 
too. Maybe it's yours. That I wanted for all the world to not be a Christian. I wanted no part of it. I prayed, in fact, ironically, that I wouldn't become a Christian. I followed Christ because I found I had no alternative. I realized it was true. And then I needed it to be true. That through his death and resurrection, my sin could be put to death. I might find new life in him. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, Jesus tells them, and you will find some. And now they weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the way perhaps we could put it, I'm, I'm of course, from down south, so I'm getting used again to being the person with an accent. Um, although actually being in Dundee, most people's accent is Northern Irish, so uh, <laughs> go figure. Uh, so I, but I'm gradually learning a bit of sort of incidental Scottish, and I suppose the way that you could summarise what happens here is in the Scottish phrase, that's you telt. Cast the net on the right side, and they gather so many fish that the nets are about to burst. That's you telt. It's the Lord. We can think. It's going to be easier to go back. It's going to be easier to give up. To go back to what we know. And we find the reality is a sleepless night and an empty net. When we're tempted to go back, we need to remember who goes with us. Because Jesus has not only died, but been resurrected in glory. We know and we can have confidence that he is victorious. That means we too in Christ will be victorious. Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it like this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection changes everything. Firstly, when we're tempted to give up, it begs us to go on. Secondly, we see here a meal to remember, I need to look there at verses 9 to 14 with me. I have here a few pictures of uh, what has been described as the most expensive meal and celebration that's ever been held. This is the 1971 commemoration of the 2500th uh, year of the Persian dynasty. The estimated cost in today's money is somewhere around $635 million. Guests included heads of state from 65 countries, emperors, kings, queens, princes, princesses, uh, sheikhs, sultans, and business figures. Temple uh, was constructed uh, in a tent city called Persopolis. Uh, approximately 15,000 trees and several uh, other different varieties of flowers were planted in the middle of a desert. 
The garden was designed by George Truffaut, the famous florist from Versailles. I'll take the author's word for that. I know nothing about gardening. They imported 50,000 songbirds from Europe and 20,000 sparrows from Spain that inevitably died when they could not handle the conditions. Approximately 18 tons of food were brought in, including millions of eggs, 2,700 kilograms of beef, 1,280 kilograms of fowl and other extraordinary food items. Twelve tons of beverages were brought across, including two and a half thousand bottles of champagne, a thousand bottles of Bordeaux, a thousand bottles of Burgundy, and 250 red Mercedes-Benz limousines were used to chauffeur guests from the makeshift airport they created. This was a meal to remember. And yet this meal of Jesus's was not quite that. Yet it was a meal to remember. It has none of that splendor but it's an incredibly significant moment. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. A very simple, very humble, very everyday kind of a meal. Jesus must have already prepared this, though, before they'd even made that catch of fish. What must have been such incredible events for the disciples, this tells us, Jesus had known and been in control of all along. And it shows something of Jesus' care for his disciples. Here he is coming back for them and cooking them breakfast. He says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And this leads neatly into, I think, what Jesus wants them to think about now, looking at the size of that catch. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. Although there's been this sort of denial and falling away, Peter now goes right back to his usual self, centre stage, and he's the spokesperson, he's the one who's first to jump aboard and to do as his master asks. But why 153 fish? Why does John think that's a significant detail to include in there? Is one of the disciples, or perhaps John himself, Rain Man, you know, who sees the toothpicks on the floor and can instantly know how many's there? Is one of them just got that kind of knack? No. I think it's one of those details you remember when you go through an extraordinary event like this, isn't it? William Temple, former Archbishop of Canterbury, says it's perverse to seek a hidden meaning in the number. It's recorded because it was found to be the number when the count was made. It's the kind of thing you remember when you really go through something like this, isn't it? And yet, why doesn't the net break for them here? Well, it serves to remind us this was a miraculous haul, even sparing the equipment. So Jesus says, and come and have breakfast. And we're told, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? It tells us that to that point, that is exactly what they wanted to ask still. (laughs) They wanted to ask, who are you? But now they don't dare. It's maybe why he encourages them to eat. There's a sense of what on earth is going on here? And who is this to this point? Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so were the fish. We know from Luke's account in chapter 24 that he actually eats some fish. Again, what's the relevance of that? What's the importance? Well, it shows he has a body. Ghosts don't eat. 
There's an idea and a concept within Judaism that might accept an idea of a resurrection to a sort of spiritual, ghostly sort of form. But him eating the fish is significant in showing he has a body. He's physically resurrected. So Jesus gives his disciples here a meal for them to remember. But it's a meal that shows that he has remembered them. They've worked all night. They've had no sleep. They're hungry. And Jesus remembers still to care for his sheep. Jesus has done that all the way along. He thought of his prayer on Friday evening. Here's one verse from it, John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. And Jesus continues to do it for us now too. First John chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The power and the reality of the resurrection means that we can have confidence that what Jesus asks his Father for us, we will receive. We see what to do when you want to give up. We see that meal to remember. And then lastly, we see the opportunity to find freedom from your past. Uh, just the other week, uh, you may possibly have seen go, doing the rounds a picture of Conor McGregor, uh, the mixed martial artist uh, around social media, becoming infamous, uh, now not so much for something he said, but for arguably the worst first pitch ever delivered at a baseball game. It's truly awful. The video sort of does it much more justice than the photograph of how wide it goes. And it made me think about whether you perhaps, like me, I've certainly had plenty, have had a moment of embarrassment in life that you've struggled to live down. As well as Conor McGregor, you might think of Jeremy Corbyn's notorious failed high five. Uh, or perhaps uh, Gemma Collins falling through a stage uh, about to deliver an award. Or David Cameron forgetting his child uh, at a pub. Or my personal favourite, because you see the pain etched on the face, Gordon Brown when he realises he's been recorded calling a voter a bigot. Peter has had a moment of devastating embarrassment. And he must have wondered whether he would really ever live this down, this public denial of Jesus. Would this public failure define the rest of his life? I think many of us, in a much more serious way, spend much of our time living in the fear that past failings will define our futures. Here, Jesus' resurrection enables Peter to be freed from his past. And it also allows us to be freed from our pasts. There's this fascinating moment here, isn't there, where Peter is freed from the shame of his failing. Days ago, Peter has denied that he knew Jesus three times in emphatic terms. And he's run away disconsolate when he's realized his failing. So Jesus turns to him now from the group to Simon personally. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We might just hit pause there a second and ask what does Jesus mean by saying more than these? What does he intend to suggest there? I suppose there's three options, isn't there? Does it mean that, Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples loved me? 
Or secondly, maybe, Peter, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Or thirdly, he could be saying, Peter, do you love me more than this way of life, fishing, that you've returned to? Won't know for sure, but it's probably the first. It's probably the first because Peter has said he loves Jesus more than the others. They may all leave, but I won't. And he did. So Peter must have wondered where this was going. Is this a trick question? (laughs) Would he now have to revisit that shameful evening? He had claimed he loved Jesus more than the other disciples. Then, of course, this rejection has cast that into some doubt, hasn't it? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And three times we have that question, do you love me? And three times we have a command. He said to him the second time, do you love me? It's no longer about the comparisons to others now, but simply do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep, Jesus commands. And then a third time, do you love me? So he says for a third time, yes, but he's grieved. Because is Jesus just trying to embarrass him in front of everyone else? He can't yet see why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus responds, then feed my sheep. And then they just seem to move on. Just seems to get left at that, doesn't it? No further commentary about exactly what's going on. So what is going on? Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Now three times Peter has publicly declared love for Jesus. Peter, when all is said and done in history, will not be known for those three denials, but those three declarations. And what it leads him to do with the rest of his life. And now three times Jesus has given Peter his calling not to be on the boat, not to be on the lake catching fish, but as he had told them all before, to be fishers for men, to feed his sheep. It's time, Peter, to put the nets down, to put your past behind you, to follow Jesus and to rise to the calling he's given to him three times publicly. And now Jesus goes on to prophesy of his death, of how he'll be taken by force, of how he'll be strung up. And indeed, this happens in history, that Peter is crucified, but insists that it's upside down so that he's not dying by the same mode of death as Jesus. And Peter won't go down in history as a coward for his denials, but courageous for his martyrdom, for his faith. Peter is freed from the shame of his past, robbing his future. And so because Jesus rose again, you can know freedom from your past. You are no longer defined by your sin which has been paid for, which has been put to death by Christ. You are now in him. The resurrection of Jesus enabled Peter to have this moment of personal redemption. 
where Jesus frees him from his past, where he's no longer defined by his denials, but by his declaration of faith. And for us too, the resurrection allows us to find freedom from our past. Romans chapter 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We see what we're to do when we want to give up. We're to keep going and remember the one who goes with us. We see that meal to remember. And then we see the way in which we may find freedom from our past. See, the resurrection changes everything. And in these short space of just a few days, it's already coming to bear on the lives of the disciples here. It shows Jesus' offering of his sinless life for our unrighteousness was accepted by God the Father. That Jesus was, after all was said and done, innocent. That he is now vindicated. That he is exonerated. It means that we too can be innocent can be vindicated, can be exonerated. Because he walks out of the tomb into new life, it means our old life can be put to death. And that we can find new life in him by believing on his name. The resurrection changes everything. I pray, and then in a few moments we'll sing our closing song together. Father God, we thank you for your loving kindness to your world. Because you love the world, you have sent your Son to come to live as one of us, to live as we always should have lived, but we never could have lived to die in our place for the sin that we've committed, for the sin that we cannot atone. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to your Father, your commitment to the calling that you gave to him that was surely overwhelming in those moments in the garden in the run-up to the arrest. that moment of for the first and only time, knowing what it is to be cut off from the Father for just a moment. To say and to really feel, why have you forsaken me? To know what it is that we know so well, but that you had never known for there to be distance between you both. And yet we thank you that you're no victim to be mourned. You're not looking for an obituary to keep your memory going. You're not needing us to feel sorry for you. But it's a story of victory.
It's a story of triumph. It's a story of the glory of God. He would give his son to set us free, to make us new, to make us who you had always made us to be, to know life in all its fullness. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you might, whatever our story is and whatever place that we are in this morning, that we would know the power of the resurrection come to bear in our lives. That, Lord, you would lead us to greater trust in what you have done for us. That when we are tempted to give up, you will help us to go on. That, Lord, you would help us to Remember what you have done and what you have called us to. And the Lord, we would know that you have freed us from our past for a glorious future. So Spirit, I ask that you might minister these truths deeply into our hearts today and over the coming days. For our good and for your glory we ask it. Amen.